We're going to pick up where we left off last week, so I want to walk through here and just kind of do a quick recap here of what we've been talking about. And so we've been working our way through these festivals. Now, these festivals are celebrated every year by the Jewish people. These were ordained by God, okay? So we need to understand that. And last week, we finished up Pentecost. (laughs) Always an awkward moment. Um, But we talked about these things because we finished up the spring feast last week. And when we look at these in the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then Pentecost. And what I want to do is I want to go through these here again. And so I'm going to read, we're going to jump into Leviticus chapter 23 here real quick. And we are going to look at these things just briefly to see what they were and how Jesus fulfilled them as we go into, because we're hitting a break in between the spring feast and the fall feast. So I kind of want to recap a little bit before we get into anything. So we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll have them up on the screen. I read out of the New King James out of habit more than anything else. So here we go. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Now, when we looked at this calendar here, we see that there um, were, there's two calendars, and it's all messed up again. Great! We see there's two calendars they look at. But the bottom line here is we're looking at the month of Nisan. They have a religious calendar and a civil calendar. It was in the book of Exodus, if you know the ten plagues and all of that, when they were getting ready to, be, to bomb a moose, to get out of there. They're getting ready to go. They tell him that he's going to sacrifice this Passover lamb. And he said, now this will be the first of many months for you. And so when they do that, he says that they're going to uh, change the date. So now what was the seventh month becomes the first month. And so they run off two calendars. They have their religious calendar and their social calendar, civil calendar and whatnot. So it gets a little bit confusing. The months are the same. The order is what's changed. That's why you'll, you'll a lot of times hear that there's two different New Year's and things like that. But what's happening here is that when we talk about the Passover and the unleavened bread, that there was a series of things that they had to do in order to do this. Now, that plague was coming in, and the angel of death was going to come and say, I'm going to kill all the firstborn, because it was against the gods of Egypt. And that's what we have to understand, that every one of those plagues was a spit in the face of one or many different gods of Egypt. And what God was doing, Yahweh was showing that I am the true God. All of these are false gods. These are not the God of the creation. These are not the God that has power. These are things that you worship, and it's all for naught. And I am showing, I'm flexing my muscle, essentially. And they had been warned time and time again. All of this didn't have to happen. All they had to do was allow God's people to be free. It was all prophesied. Abraham was told that your people will be a slave to a stranger for 400 years. And that's exactly what happened. That's the exact time frame. And so God says, here's what you're going to do. Is you're going to take a lamb. It's going to be a newborn lamb. It's going to be a firstborn lamb. It has to have absolutely no spots, no blemishes. You can have nothing wrong with it. And you're going to kill this lamb outside. And you're going to take that blood. And you're going to apply it on the lintel and the doorpost. And the word there means to strike. You're going to strike the lintel. You're going to strike the doorpost. You're going to use hyssop to do it. And then you will consume this land. And there was a procedure they had to go about that. And they had to eat the entirety of the lamb. But they could have no leaven in their house. All of it had to be gone. 
Now, all of this points to Christ and the fact that when John the Baptist saw Jesus for this first time, what did he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's telling us who that Lamb was, and that was significant. Because prior to this, they were waiting on this Messiah, but the idea to a Jewish mindset that this Messiah was going to have to die was foreign because they refused to accept it. They believed in two different messiahs coming at one time. Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering servant, and Messiah ben David, the ruling king. Jesus was both of those together, but instead of two coming once, you've got one coming twice. He came as a suffering servant the first time, which is what Isaiah 53 says. And in verse 4, it says that it pleased God to smite him. That word smite is the same word that is used when they were to apply that blood to the doorpost. It's to strike So there's this combination of things going on here. And when they did this, the angel would pass over that house and that judgment would not befall them. And that's where the name Passover comes from. So they were protected. The firstborn of all living in that area died at that time. And Jesus fulfills all of this to the letter, to the time of his death, to the time that he was put into the grave and everything about that. He fulfilled Passover. Then we get into unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was the part of the ceremony in which all leaven had to be removed from the house. And then they would eat matzah, essentially, for seven days. They could have no leaven whatsoever. In the Bible, leaven is always representative of sin. Leaven is what we would consider yeast. It gives rise to the bread. It puffs up. That's why it's used idiomatically as sin all the way through the Bible. And so they had to remove that. Now, how does that fit Jesus? Well, Jesus never sinned. There was no sin in him. He willingly laid down his life. He fulfilled that unleavened bread. We see two of those first spring feasts fulfilled in Jesus. And I don't want to go into a bunch more detail on that for time's sake. You can go back and listen to them. But it is incredible when you begin to make these different connections. So at his death, you have Passover and unleavened bread filled. The one that comes after that is first fruits. Okay, let's look at Leviticus 23 and verse 9. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruit of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Okay, now we talked about all these different, um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about all these different sacrifices that had to be made, these offerings and what they were and what they symbolized. But when we look at what the first fruit offering is that at the end of the Passover, they would have three days and three nights in which that they, would, they were eating an unleavened bread and then they would bring the first fruit of the harvest. And what would happen is that when the high priest would kill, they're in Jerusalem, they would kill the lambs for these, these uh, Passover meals, they would slit the throat, the high priest would say, it is finished. And then at that point, he would seclude himself for three days and three nights in the Temple Mount where the area is. They had all these mikvah poles, and he would have to be ceremonially cleansed because there's a lot of things behind that. I don't have time to go into today. But he would cleanse himself, and therefore nobody could touch him because anything outside that touched him would make him unclean, and he would have to do it all over again because he has to become 
essentially perfect in order to bring that offering before the Lord. And so when he would do that, the rest of the priests would go to the barley harvest where they were at, and they would mark the omer. And what that is is they'd take a cord, and they would wrap ten different bunches of barley. And they would do that immediately after Passover. And then the night before the, the, Passover, or the first fruits offering was prepared to be made, they would come out there and they would harvest those things and they would turn them into the cake. And we see Jesus fulfill this in the book of Matthew. Because what happened is when he died, it says that the graves opened up. And then after he raised, that they, the dead in Christ raised with him. And that is so significant to these first fruit offerings that were made because they were marked. They would mark the omer. They would mark them. These graves were marked. And Jesus raised three days and three nights later. That's why when Mary was standing, he says, don't touch me. I haven't gone to the Father yet because he's still in that cleansing place. But yet it wasn't the time. He had to wait. He had to be prepared. All of these things, these are the first fruit. Then when you get done with this, okay, these first three fulfilled by Jesus' first coming. Then we get a gap of 50 days, 49 days plus one. They were supposed to count from the end of the Sabbath, 49 days, and then you add the one to get to the day of Pentecost and the Feast of Pentecost. So let's look at this. In verse 15, it's also called the Feast of Weeks. It's got seven different names that it goes by throughout Scripture, but it's always talking about the same thing. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, it's talking about that first fruit offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord. And their grain offering and their drink offerings are an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. Then the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You should do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Okay, so that's just a lot of words. What are we talking about here? They're to count the 50 days to prepare for Pentecost. And then they go through and they do all of these offerings. And what we see here is what's going on is the time frame of which Jesus was after he resurrected until he goes back up to the Father. You have a time of 40 days. Okay, now that 40 is significant. Jesus was in the wilderness and fasted for 40 days, right? Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. You see all sorts of 40 days throughout the scripture. But when we compare it, the giving of the law and to the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church is what takes place on Pentecost. Because when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. Giving of the law, God's giving the commandments, the 613 commandments. And as I said, this whole thing that's taking place is God's marriage to Israel. Do you agree with this? And it all has to do with a Jewish thing. Do not, our American marriage has, is like so different than what goes on biblically. And if you understand the biblical side, so much more of the scripture will make sense. And we're going to get into that probably a little bit Wednesday night, kind of start explaining some of that stuff. But the bottom line here is he goes up there, he's given the Ten Commandments, and God says, hey, your people, they're going nuts. They, they made a golden calf, now they're worshiping him. The people pressured Aaron to do it, they're like, he's gone, he's probably dead, you know, we don't know what's going on with Moses, and so they took out their earrings, and those were the, essentially, the, it's like the ear tag on a cow, okay, that's their ownership by Egypt, that's how they knew the slaves. And so they took those out, melted them, molded them into calves, said, hey, here's your God, this is what took you out of Egypt. 
And so they're, they're dancing around doing it. God says, Moses, you need to get down there. Your people are crazy, okay? And so he goes down there. He, of course, gets mad. He ends up breaking the Ten Commandments. He, he convinces God to spare them. He said, save a remnant. But at this point, 3,000 people are killed because they broke the very commandment that they all had just agreed to. Yes, Lord, you'll be our God. We'll be your people. We'll do everything you say. And then they blinked, and then it was over. They screwed it up already. Says a lot for us, right? Okay. But when Jesus tells his people, you need to wait. You need to stay in Jerusalem. Because remember, at these feasts, they had to go back to Jerusalem, every, every able-bodied male. He said, I want you to wait until the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is interesting because Jesus had already told them, I need you to go into all of the world. But he said, I need you to wait. And this is what's going to happen. So they go and they wait, and they're in the upper room. They're staying at somebody's house. They had these upper rooms where groups of people would meet together. And they're praying. They're 10 days. They're up there. They're waiting. And on the very day of the Feast of Pentecost, they said there's this loud rushing wind and a tongue of fire upon each of them. And that it's just pouring out, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, these people are already born again. At the end of the book of John, Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is talking about something completely different. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. Now there's an uproar because it says the people heard this sound. There wasn't a wind blowing. There was the sound of a wind blowing, okay? So their hair wasn't getting messed up. It was fine. And so the sound is going on. People are coming around like, what on earth is going on? And it hears them speaking in tongues. It says they're speaking our languages. But wait a minute. They're Galileans. How is that possible? And as I said last week, that to them, a Galilean is the country bumpkin. It's those people you look down upon because they're not as smart as we are here in Rockport, Missouri, because we got it going on. I don't know. We look down on Tarkio. Who do we look down on around here? Somebody. If you're from... <sighs> security get thee behind me okay I'm the one that makes the jokes here all right stay with me all right here we go we do not look down upon Nebraska as the place in which Jesus resides all right moving right along but that's what they're looking at. They're like, these guys, they don't know nothing. They're unlearned. They're fishermen, typically, or farmers or whatever. You know, farmers don't know nothing, right, Janet? They, what do they know? All right. Before I make everybody else mad, we're going to move right along. But they don't know. They're like, these guys aren't educated. How are they speaking the things of God in our language? We don't get that. And so they're confused. Some people went so far as like, they're drunk, right? They're, they've, been, uh, they've been hitting it a little early. It's, it's early in the morning. It's too early, okay? Nobody's drinking that early. And if they were, they shouldn't have been. Okay, so here they are. This is going on. So they're in response to all of this is happening. They're trying to explain it away. And then Peter steps up and delivers the sermon of his life. I mean, it is better. And he says, this is not what you think. These are not drunk like you think. This is the promise that Jesus said that the Father would send the Holy Spirit. And this is what was prophesied by Joel. That in the last days His Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old man will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams. Okay, all of these different things. Talking about. He goes on about it. And it says, on that day, about 3,000 people came to Christ. We're in Jerusalem. These are the guys that not, I mean, we're talking 50 days after the crucifixion, guys. This isn't that long, right? And yet now they're receiving Jesus. 
And he gets up there and he does it. And it's, it's amazing. But you had, at the giving of the law, 3,000 people died. At the giving of the Spirit, 3,000 people come to eternal life. And here we are in that same time frame. And as we read through Leviticus 23, we see all of these talking about these feasts. And we can see, if we trace all of this out, we can watch Jesus fulfill them. But at the end here of what we just read in verse 21, kind of throws an obscure verse in verse 22. And I want to read this to you because I'm going to bring something out today that you may never have heard before. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 22. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, prior to this, everything was about the specific feast, but this is out of place because this isn't just at this feast when you harvest this, don't do this. This is anytime you're harvesting. Whatever you harvest, you're supposed to leave the corners of the field, you leave them alone. And what would happen is these men, they didn't have combines back then, if you didn't know that. Okay, John Deere wasn't around yet. And so they would walk through this and they would begin harvesting it. And if they missed something, they were not allowed to go back and pick it up. They had to leave it. And it was for the poor, and it says the stranger. Okay, a stranger is a twofold word here. But what it means is it's somebody that was a proselyte Jew, so they were outside, they were not an Israelite, they wanted to become one, so they would come into the fold, it's the Hebrew word ger, G-E-R, and they would come into the fold and they would accept everything of God. It also could be somebody passing through the land, either way, didn't matter. But they were to leave that there and allow that to happen. Now why is he putting this here? Because the very next verse gets into the fall feast, and it's so obscure, and what I'm going to present to you today is this interval before, between the spring feast with the four that we just talked about, ending with Pentecost, and the fall feast, which again, this all has to do with harvest, is the very time that you and I are sitting in right now, the time of the church. And let me explain a couple of reasons why. First of all, you guys remember a year ago, we went through the book of Ruth, and we went through it pretty in depth. We took our time with it. And I showed you that that is the most important book to the church because you have a non-Jewish person who married into a Jewish family, husband dies, all of that. Her mother-in-law says, I'm going back home. And she said, you need to stay here and find somebody because the law said that their brother was supposed to marry her. That way the name would live on. Well, she has no more children. And she refuses. Ruth refuses. No, I'm going with you. And she said, I don't have any more kids. There's nobody left for you to marry. She's like, I don't care. I will never leave you. Goes with her. And then he says, listen, she tells him, oh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go over there. There's this guy named Boaz. He's got these fields. And I said, just go in there. She's going to reap. She's going to do what we just said. She's going to go in there and pick whatever is left. And as she does that, Boaz catches wind of it and gives her favor and says, don't just pick what's left. You come and take what you want. And he protects her and takes care of her. It's called the near kinsman redeemer. And ultimately, they fall in love. That's not really what happens. But he marries her and the nearest kinsman. And we went into all of that detail. But this is a picture of Christ in the church because you have an outsider being brought in by the Messiah. That Jesus was our near kinsman redeemer. And based off of the things of the law, he is able to bring us all into the body of Christ. Guys, this is what this is talking about here. This verse, this pause between the two festivals is life is to continue along normal lines here. For the Jewish person, it's pictured the summertime, it's the labor in the field. What do farmers do in the summer? They complain about the lack of rain. What do they do in the spring? They complain about the abundance of rain. What do they do in the winter? Why isn't it spring yet? Right? I mean, it's just, they're complaining. 
But in this time, this labor, they're preparing the fields for the summer, the end of the summer harvest. This fall harvest is about to take place. And this verse here is not related to any of these specific feasts. Everything else is specific. This is talking about the harvest. So this pause here is you've got the first coming of Jesus fulfilled in the spring. You're going to see next week as we begin to get into this that the return of Jesus is going to be fulfilled with the fall feast. But we've got this time in between. And this has all these messianic implications. This is what we call the church age. And it's kind of hidden here. It's inserted here. And you kind of have to dig it out to understand it. But the mission of the church itself is reap the harvest, right? Gather the harvest. You see in John chapter 4 where Jesus says, he says, look on the fields. He said, they're white ready with harvest already. In other words, when he said that, it wasn't time of the harvest. Now, a Jewish person, a farmer standing around looking like, it's not ready yet. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. He said, the people are here. So this is a fitting symbol of the obligation of the church to do gospel evangelism. So when you compare that with the rest of what's going on, it's kind of parenthetical. You've got this temporary interruption here between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, which is the age that we're in. Now, what about this church age? Because as you know, if you come on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Revelation. And we've just spent the last two and a half months or so talking about the seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And what we've looked upon is that those are written to the church. And that each one corresponding with the church at that time, but also has this historic prophetic narrative where it seems to fit time frames. And if they were in any other order, it wouldn't fit of time and history. And so we would put us in this Laodicean, which was the last church, the apostate church, the church that was warned. But when you compare that and everything that's going on with Matthew 13, you start seeing these, these connections here of Jesus returning. And Jesus, and we went through this Wednesday night, what Jesus always taught in parables. From Matthew chapter 12, he finishes there, and 13, every time he's teaching, he teaches in parables. And we never begin to question why, we just like, oh, okay, these stories is easier to understand. That's not why he did it. So we're going to look at this here, so this is going to be a little bit of a review if you're here on Wednesday night. For those of you who aren't, you're going to hear this for the first time. Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, that's talking about the disciples, and your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus here in, these, in all of these parables is talking about his second coming when he's coming back. And he's doing this in a way that only they can understand. He said, this is what the people that all came before you wanted to hear. They're standing there with the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's like, you're getting to see what they wanted to see. And you're getting to hear what they wanted to hear. But he's teaching in parables because he, he goes into this prophecy by Isaiah. He said, they see, but they don't see. And they hear, but they don't hear. It's kind of like your kids, right? They hear the words, but it's not quite getting to that next level. Like, clean up your room means to them, go play with your toys, right? There's, there's a disconnect that's not happening. Now, we jump down to verse 34. It says, all these things, 
that Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables that without, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. In other words, these are code. That those whose eyes are open and ears are open will understand this. But he says these things have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And what we're seeing is, is when you go through all of these parables, and we did this Wednesday night, is that all of this is talking about the age and return of Jesus that we're in right now. He said they don't understand. He said they've been kept secret. Well, what has been kept secret? These things, these parables. Well, Paul gives us the answers to this in Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 1, now watch. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. So who's he writing to? Gentiles. Gentile is a non-Jew. You are a Jew, and if you were anything but a Jew, you're a Gentile. All of us in here, we're Gentiles, unless your last name is Cohen or something like that. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, and it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. And here's what it is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. What is the mystery? That the Gentiles are not just going to be converted, but that they are joint heirs with the nation of Israel. Remember, this, Jesus is writing or speaking as a Jewish rabbi to Jewish people. The mystery that they're not understanding is the fact that everybody else is in the body of Christ. You have Jew and Gentile coming together. And that's a theme that's all the way through Scripture. Because the promise to him is that you will be the father of many nations. Not just Jewish nations, many nations. All of them coming together. And we see this idea that the Gentiles will be a part of it. Now, to a Jewish person, you guys, this is unheard of. Because part of the law was that you could not associate with somebody that wasn't a Jew. They did not eat with them. They didn't do anything with them. And most certainly didn't marry them. And so you've got all of these things going on. And so you think about this. This is like completely crazy to them. But we watch an example, and you're going to see this in Acts chapter 10 of how this plays out. Because in Acts chapter 10, you've got Peter with a vision. I'm going to read through the entire thing. Okay? So it's going to be, we got a lot of scripture today, folks. But I'm going to read through this entire thing. But look at Peter's reaction as Jesus is giving him a vision, showing him to go to the Gentile people. All right? We're going to start in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a soldier. He was a higher up soldier. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So he's a God-fearer. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And so when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now let's pause here for a minute. Remember, this is the same Peter that denied Christ. 
Three times at the cross. It's the same Peter that stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the message in which 3,000 people came to the Lord. And so this is that same Peter. And now we see that, first of all, he's staying with a man who is a t- Simon the Tanner. A tanner is basically like a taxidermist. They're making leathers and things like that. This was unclean work. They were typically kept outside. He wasn't a Jewish man, so he's staying with a Gentile, which is odd enough. But certainly for what he is doing, he would, no Jew would ever be caught in the home of a person like this because this is unclean, and it would make them unclean. So Cornelius sins after him. Verse 9, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Remember, they had flat roofs, so it was unco- wasn't uncommon to go up on top. And then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they, they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to earth. And it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And this is a common thing, you know, that we're seeing here with the Jewish person. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up to heaven again. Now, this is going to have to be a little confusing, because you see his response, I have never eaten anything. That is unclean. That means he's followed the dietary laws that were given to them. They had things that they could eat. They had things that they couldn't eat. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. If you're ever bored, read Leviticus. It's, it's, it's inspiring. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had sin, seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who was sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And he said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, has divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them and lodged with them. And the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, why did they go to all that trouble? He's a man who fears God and has a good reputation among all the Jews. Because a lot of time, if a soldier was calling a Jewish man, it was not a good thing for the Jewish man. Okay, so he's putting his mind at ease. But the Holy Spirit had already told Peter, he said, I've sent them, go with them. Verse 24, and the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Peter's catching what that vision was talking about. It wasn't talking about food. It was talking about people. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I, sent, I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until the, this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately and have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded to you by God. Lays it out there for him. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive 
that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace, through which Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with Him. And we are witnesses of all things that He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will have will receive remissions of sin. Peter's going through all of this. He says, I was a witness. I saw that. This is what Jesus told us to do. So he is telling them exactly what took place. Verse 44. But while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that would be the Jews who believed were astonished. Because remember, Peter took some people with him. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. They're shocked. They did not expect that. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now again, you've got to, I mean, put yourself in that perspective. They were not prepared for that. He didn't know why he was going. He just went. He was being obedient. He shows up. He begins to tell them all the things that Jesus had told them, all the things that they saw. And while he's doing it, just like in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Now, the opening of the church in Jerusalem at that time was all Jewish men. Here we have Gentiles. They're blown away. We shouldn't, you saw it. We shouldn't be in your house. You know, we're not supposed to be here. They were not prepared for that. And then after seeing it, how did they know that the Holy Spirit came upon them? Because they heard them speaking in tongues. And they were magnifying God. And he's like, well, I mean, this happened. Should we baptize them with water? I mean, they're kind of like figuring it out as they go along. But these guys are blown away and they're shocked. But watch the reaction in the next chapter. In chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, the Jews, contended with him, in other words, scolded him, saying, you went into the uncircumcised men and ate with them? You guys see how serious of a thing this is? Like, this is just not arbitrary. This is a, Peter, you really shouldn't have done that. I mean, they're nailing his butt to the wall. They're letting him have it. And then he goes on from this point and he explains, now wait a minute. He talks about the vision that he saw and everything that happened. Then he talks about as he's telling them these things, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And the, they begin to pray in tongues just like they had done. And then watch what verse 15 says. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and was upon us at the beginning. What's the beginning? Pentecost. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Y'all, this is huge because this was not on their radar. And you can go back and trace this. Look at the interaction. You had Gentiles and you had Jews. 
The Jews weren't stuck up. God kept them separated for a purpose until the time of the Messiah because they had to have this nation birth that of Abraham that goes through the lineage of David and all of that. And the only way you can do that is you cannot assimilate with other people. And when they would, and they would go marry people of these foreign tribes, they would sit there and they would say, you know, they would be scolded, they would be judged for it. And so what happens here is unexpected. It should not have happened. And so here they are, and it's like, we are going to glorify God. He's granted repentance to the Gentiles. And this is where we are, guys, in this time frame, is that this Gentile and Jewish world as in one new man. And that is what Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You guys, this is what it's talking about. This one new man, the body and bride of Christ made up. And Ephesians 2 talks about that specifically. And one, that we are the body of Christ, that we come together. And that's what's symbolic in Pentecost. It's the only time that leaven is ever used. Leaven puffs up. There were two loaves of bread. Jewish and Gentile coming together. It was all put here. But here's the thing and why this is significant. Because who was to be keeping watch when Jesus came the first time? It was the Jews. Gentiles didn't, weren't waiting on their Messiah. The Jews were. And there were all these signs. And that is why in 70 AD that, that the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem happened. The temple was destroyed. And Jesus told him, this is going to happen because you weren't watching, you weren't prepared. He's in tears as he's saying this. As he rode into Jerusalem days before he would go to the cross, he said, you weren't prepared and you should have been because all the signs were there, everything pointing to it. But now, when Jesus returns, it's not just the Jews. It's the body of Christ. It's both being brought together. This one new man will welcome the return and fulfillment of these fall feasts. We are in this four-month gap right now between these feasts. The question is, is what are we supposed to be doing? It's not time to just sit back. The farmer didn't actually just sit back and say, hey, I'm just going to let this stuff grow. They had to make sure the weeds were down. They had to make sure the water was happening. They had to go in there, prepare everything to get ready because when it was time for the harvest, it's time to go to work. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 11, it says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, this is referring to Israel, the Jews, to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? We are in the moment right now and one of our purpose is to drive the Jewish person to jealousy, to see the relationship we have with the same God as them, to drive them to jealousy. Because they should have been prepared. Romans chapter 9 is talking about Israel's past. And in Romans chapter 10 is talking about Israel's present. And Romans chapter 11 is talking about its future and the days to come. All of this here, we are supposed to be doing this, but that's not the only thing. Because look at what Matthew 28 says. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations 
baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, how much authority was given to Jesus? All of it. And what does he do? Here you go. Go. Make disciples of the nations. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not just water baptism. It's not just this ritual. That we're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Then we're baptized in water by the disciple. But the third phase of that, in order to go into all the world, to be like the apostles, is the baptism in the Holy Spirit that comes upon you, that gives you the power to do it. Because Jesus says in John 14, verse 12, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he'll do those also. And greater works than these, because I go to my Father. Why are they greater? Because Jesus was only doing them for a short time. So what was Jesus doing? Because if we're supposed to be doing them, what was He doing? Well, let's look at that. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. What was Jesus doing? He was, the synagogue was their church. He was teaching in the church. Then He went out into the streets and preached the gospel of the kingdom. And what did He do? Every person who was sick, He laid hands on them, and they were healed. So what should we be doing? Those three things. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. We see Jesus illustrate exactly what Isaiah 53 was talking about. And all of that has to do with him going to the cross. We are to be continuing the works that Jesus did. But there's one more thing that we're supposed to be doing. In Mark chapter 13, in verse 32, it says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowning of the rooster, or crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. This is talking about when Jesus returns. And here's the illustration. He says, Hey, I'm the master that's going away for a time. And I've given you the authority of the house to do what you're supposed to be doing, to do your work, to do all that kind of stuff. But keep watch so I don't find you sleeping. Here's the problem, folks. Most of the church today. Sound asleep. They're not watching. They're not doing the work of the Lord. People go to church on Sunday. Yep, put in my time. Go home. That's it. What happened to the power of God? And what happened to the work of the ministry? You know, so many churches today talk about, and I'm not trying to dog on churches. I mean, church is the big grand scheme of things, okay? Everybody. There's no one church doing this. But they'll talk about, well, Jesus came to teach the people that they need to take care of the widow and, and do these good things and take care of the poor. No, he didn't. Because all of that was in the law anyway. They were supposed to be doing it. The Beatitudes and all that kind of stuff that was taking place, uh, that, that stuff was supposed to be happening. Jesus came to save that which was lost, to break the power of the enemy, to show that his death and subsequent resurrection are not just hyperbole, but there is power in those events. And then it goes on all through the New Testament. It says that same power, that same spirit that's inside of you, 
or that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you. It's the same one. So what are we supposed to be doing in this interval? We're just supposed to be doing the work of the Lord. That started with Jesus as in our example. That everything he did up until the point of death that we are to be prepared to do. It was carried on by apostles. And all of which illustrated the life of Christ. And here now is our time. You and I to do the work of the Lord. To do what we are called to do. Which is to go and teach in the churches. And preach the gospel of the kingdom everywhere we go. And to lay hands on the sick and that they will recover. That all of those who believe will do this. Now, as we get ready to go into this fall festivals, guys, I'm going to point out a, a verse in verse 32. It says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. I can promise you, you have no idea what that means. I can promise you. Because it's not what you've been taught. So you have to come back next week.